you ever find yourself having a particular goal that you want to accomplish and then something interferes with those plans and you're not able to fulfill the thing that you had hoped to do? While there are a number of themes in our story this morning, I think that's one of the first ones that we see in the opening verses. Obviously, uh, Paul has just come out, as Paul mentioned, from the conflict there at Ephesus. There is a, the uproar that we saw last week, and so Paul's ministry in Ephesus, even though it has lasted for over two years, has now come to an end. And so he takes his leave of the disciples there, and he intends to go to Macedonia. Now this, of course, fits with his previous plan that he had outlined in chapter 19, verse 21. Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul's plan was Macedonia, Jerusalem, Rome, Macedonia and Achaia, which would have been right next to each other. Then we see at the beginning here of chapter 20, Paul leaves to go to Macedonia. He goes throughout the districts that he had previously visited and comes to Greece, having exhorted the brethren there, spends three months in Greece. And then it says, when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So we have to ask ourselves, why is it that Paul mentions Syria here when he had not mentioned Syria before? What purpose would he have in going to Syria on his way to Jerusalem? And the short answer would be that the church in Antioch of Syria was the one that had sent him out on these missionary journeys, and so his plan would have been to go back and to report to them. And then we also have this question of, uh, and we're going to see a little bit later, there's this sense of urgency that Paul has that he wants to get back by a particular point. We see this in verse 16. Paul was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Verse 6 mentions Passover. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. So Paul's plan seems to have been, go report to the church, be in Jerusalem for Passover and for Pentecost, proclaim the gospel at both of those major feasts as an opportunity, perhaps his last, to share the gospel with his fellow countrymen for which he had such a burden. Why do I say that he had such a burden for those fellow countrymen? Think about what he says in Romans 9 and in the following chapters. I mean, he speaks so emphatically. He says, if it were possible, I would almost be willing to be condemned for all eternity if it would mean the salvation of my fellow people Israel. That's a striking and a, a bold statement to make. I would almost be willing to suffer in hell if they would be spared. Paul had a great burden to see his fellow Israelites saved. He had not given up on them, and he believed that God had not given up on them, despite all the things that had gone forth with their rejection of the Messiah, their continued opposition to his ministry. I mean, think about the fact that Paul has been opposed time and again. There have been groups from a particular city that would follow him around to new cities and try to stir up riots and get him thrown in jail, and yet he still said, if it were possible, I would be willing to die and to suffer if they would believe. Paul loved his fellow Israelites. And his goal, his plan, his purpose was to go and preach the gospel to them again. 
but God changed his plan. They were getting ready to sail on a ship. He can't sail on that ship because the Jews had a plot for his life. So again, it's ironic that the very people that he's seeking to minister to are the ones who are interfering with his goal of ministering to them. So, instead of setting sail for Syria, arriving in time for Passover, arriving in time for Pentecost, he decides to travel back through Macedonia, actually going northward, back through Macedonia, because he had come in Macedonia, down to Achaia in Greece. Now he's going back up, and he's going to sail across the little um, uh, body of water there over to what we would now know as the land of Turkey and then travel along the coastline, a more slow route, back to Jerusalem. This accompaniment of these various people in verse 4 is something else that I think that we should highlight. What is the significance of having all these different people? What's the significance of them being named as being from these various locations? And why were they going with Paul? The answer is, Interestingly, not found in the book of Acts. Luke does not focus on this, perhaps because it doesn't fit the overall theme of what he's... His, he's focusing on things that sort of parallel the mission of Paul to get to Jerusalem and then Rome, almost in the same sense that Jesus had an urgency to come to Jerusalem at the right time to fulfill God's word, to suffer, to die, and so forth. He's not saying that Paul is Jesus in any sense, or that Paul is exactly like Jesus, but like Jesus, Paul had a burden that God had laid upon him of what he must do and how he must suffer and what God was going to accomplish through his ministry. So that's Luke's main focus. So Luke doesn't seem to get hung up on all of the specific ins and outs, for example, of why these people in verse 4 were accompanying Paul. The answer, I think, though, is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. So feel free to turn there if you'd like. Paul had a goal to take up a collection for the poor in Jerusalem in, a, in connection with his preaching of the gospel as part of the gratitude of the Gentile churches and in simply because it would honor God, Paul sought to take a collection from the churches on his third missionary journey, take it back to the church of Jerusalem, which by this time perhaps had run out of many of the resources that we see back in the beginning of the book of Acts, where everyone is sharing their property, everyone is selling off houses and lands to provide for the needs of those who had nothing. You can only sustain that for so long, right? And then the houses have been sold, the property has been given up, and if the persecution continues, there's still an ongoing need. And Paul wanted to seek to meet that need, and he speaks of that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He says in verse 4 that the churches of Macedonia begged for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. He admonishes the Corinthian church to prepare for this offering. He speaks of the fact that in verse uh, 19, uh, one specific brother that had been appointed by the churches to travel with this Paul in this gracious work, taking precautions so no one will discredit us, for the administration of this generous gift. So various churches sent representatives from their churches to go with Paul to deliver the gift, to have some safety in numbers so that the perhaps sizable gift was not stolen or mislaid on the way, and so that there would be no question that this was not for Paul's benefit, but for the purpose for which he had uh, laid out. 
And so, uh, essentially, this would have been 2 Corinthians before Paul goes, collects the gift when he's down in Achaia in Greece. He would have been bringing it back now through Macedonia. He would have been taking it with him back to Jerusalem as a ministry to the saints, as a thanksgiving to God, as a sign of gratitude from the Gentile churches toward the Jewish churches through whom they had received the gospel. So that is the reason for these four. And look at the diverse group that there are. There's a, a man from Berea. There's two from Thessalonica. Uh, Timothy of Lystra, Gaius of Derby. Those are from, would have been from Galatia. And so from Macedonia, from, uh, no, I'm sorry, from Berea, from the Thessalonians, from those who are in Galatia, from those who are in Asia. There's people from all of these different places that Paul administered together participating in this work. And this was a testimony to God's work in them. Not only had they been converted, not only had God worked in them spiritually, but God had worked in them such that they would be willing to generously support and help fellow believers who are in need. Verse 5, These had gone ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. So they sailed from Philippi across the body of water over to Troas, which would be in modern-day Turkey. And then they're going to stay there for a brief period of time. Again, verse 6, because of the delay, Paul has missed the Passover. He said they didn't sail from Philippi until after the days of unleavened bread. And so then verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. When it says that they were gathered together to break bread, we look at it and we think, is this a church potluck? And the answer is no. If you turn back to Acts chapter 2, or I'm happy to read it for you as well, it says... So then, verse 41 and 42, those who had received his word, Peter's sermon, were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then in verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Most likely, the breaking of bread was a reference to the celebration of the memorial of Christ, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, because it also talks separately about them taking their meals together. Now, these two things would have happened at a similar point in time. They would have often had a meal and celebrated the Lord's table. How do we know this? Because it says in the book of Corinthians, Paul says... You're gorging yourself at the meal before you celebrate the Lord's table, and in so doing, you're dishonoring the Lord's table. And so when it says that they gather to break bread, essentially they are gathered for a service to remember Christ's death, to hear God's word, to be encouraged. There's some dispute whether the first day of the week would be um, uh, Saturday or Sunday. I think the most natural sense would be to understand that it was Sunday, was considered the first day of the week, and that Paul is not speaking on Saturday night into Sunday, but rather Sunday night into Monday morning when he's planning to leave on his trip. Paul begins talking to them, intending to leave the next day and prolonged his message until midnight. So we say, if you start your church service at 11 in the morning, he talked for a long time. Well, let's think about it. It would not have been that he would have probably started his service first thing in the morning or even mid-morning because 
they would have had to work regular jobs. They didn't get Sundays off. The Romans had no regard for the Christian observation of, of Sunday. So they would have most likely been gathering after work late into the evening. And so Paul is speaking, still for a decent amount of time, but not all day long. And think about this. You've been working all day. You're in a room with many torches lit. It's late at night. It's starting to get dark. It's the perfect combination of circumstances for what to happen here uh, to take place. Uh, and, and Luke points that out. There's many lamps in the upper room, so the lamps would have been using up some of the air and giving off a little bit of smoke. It would have been, again, a, an opportunity to fall asleep. There was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, seeking in, sinking into a deep sleep. Why would he have been sitting on the windowsill? Maybe because he was trying to get some fresh air. Maybe because, like us, when we're starting to fall asleep, we open a window or we stand up or do something like that. He was probably doing his best to try to pay attention to what Paul was saying. This story is not about the length of preaching, although many have made that the focus of the story. The story is not really even about Eutychus, although his name is mentioned and he's one of the key characters in this account. The story is about what happens next. As Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep, fell down from the third floor, and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. Turn back to 1 Kings chapter 17. Starting in verse 17. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. His sickness was so severe there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to bring my iniquity remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying? By causing her son to die, then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. He took this boy and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Then turn over to 2 Kings chapter 4. Verse 32, When Elisha came into the house, behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. So he entered into and shut the door behind them both and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands and stretched himself on him and the flesh of the child became warm then he returned and walked in the house once back and forth and went up and stretched himself on him and the lad sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. He called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her and when she came in to him, he said, Take up your son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and she took up her son and went out. And then if we look at the similar account with Jesus in Luke chapter 8. starting in verse 49. 
While he was still speaking, this is Jesus teaching, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, Stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. Her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. And then the familiar account in John 11. The story of Lazarus. Starting in verse 38. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him. And let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. And then finally, Acts chapter 9, verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died, and when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, Do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and, and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. Now we saw in chapter 19 and verse 11 that Paul was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. But to this point, Paul had not performed the greatest miracle that Jesus had performed, or that Peter had performed, or that the prophets had performed in the Old Testament, and that was the raising of someone from the dead. The structure of this story and the details that Luke records, I think, are supposed to make us remember those stories and see the connection that Paul has both to the prophets of the Old Testament and to the ministry of Jesus and the other apostles. God's power not just to transform lives spiritually, but to even give physical life to those who are dead, is not limited to 
Jesus or Peter or to the apostles of the Old Testament, but God also grants it in this instant to Paul. And we see that God's power is a testimony to the truth of the message and as a sign both to believers and unbelievers, and particularly here as an encouragement to believers. And we're supposed to see in this a connection of God's work that is continuing all throughout this span of history. Verse 11 says, When he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. If I remember correctly, the actual literal translation is, were not a little comforted. Just like he was saying, the people were, uh, there was no small disturbance back in chapter 19. And so think about this. Your son's sitting in the window. He falls down three stories and he's dead. You're there doing what you ought to do, gathered with God's people, trying to listen to God's message, giving up time that you could be sleeping when you have to get up early the next morning for work, and God repays you by letting your son die by falling out of a window? I mean, that's potentially the sort of thing that could have gone through someone's mind in that situation. If we want to back things up a little bit further, Paul, if you had just gone ahead with your trip and sailed to Syria, you never would have stopped here, and this never would have happened, and our son would be alive. They say no one would think that. That's the sort of thoughts that probably cross our minds. But God changed Paul's plan. God permitted this to take place. Why? To show his power. To demonstrate Paul's authority as an apostle. To comfort this family, not only because they have a son, but because they received him back alive when they had been dead. To illustrate the power of the gospel, that it's not just something with implications for down the road, but the same Jesus who grants us spiritual life has the power over life and death here and now. And they were greatly comforted. And this fellowship continued, not just till midnight. Verse 11 says, He talked with them a long while until daybreak. This church service went all night long, praying to God, considering what He had done, fellowshipping with probably the last time that they would see Paul. And so we see that God changed Paul's plan and he missed getting to Jerusalem for Passover. But God had a different plan for Paul. And sometimes it's easy for us to say, well, if God changes your plans, he, had a, he has a better plan for you. But the fact of the matter is, the person who dies is not usually revived. The person who gets sick doesn't always get better. The job that you lost isn't always replaced with a higher paying job. But God does know the end from the beginning and He will be glorified in every circumstance of our lives. And it will work out for our good, perhaps not in the way that it did for Job, where he got back twice as much materially and in terms of family as he did before, but perhaps in the way that it does in Hebrews 11 where it says that those who experienced true faith and lived by it and died by it received a better country. 
So I won't promise you that you'll get your reward for the difficulties in your life that are caused by God changing your plan, that you'll get that reward now. That reward may come in heaven. That reward may be being in God's presence. But there is a reward for those who faithfully follow God. God will be glorified in these things that He accomplishes. And God has the right to change our plans. Sometimes that frustrates us. Uh, it frustrates kids when parents say, we were going to do this, and now we have to do this. It frustrates us when we said, I'm going to do this, and your boss says, no, you're going to work that day. When we see our plans change, do we see in it opportunities for God to work, or do we merely complain and be frustrated and think that we knew the way that it should have gone? I think this story teaches us some of these truths. When we come to verse 13, we going ahead to the ship set sail for Asos, intending from there to take Paul on board, for so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us there, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We arrived the following day opposite Chios and Samos and then to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Come to this last verse, which is kind of a transitional section between the first half of chapter 20 and the second half that we'll look at next week. And we say, Paul, you just spent all night fellowshipping with these other people. Why don't you have time for these people here in Asia? Probably two reasons, although the text doesn't say specifically. Probably the first reason is he had had an extended opportunity to minister at Ephesus and so there would have been a lot of people for him to spend time with and fellowship with and have conversations with. And he knew that if he was going to accomplish his goal of getting back to Jerusalem, he could not take that time at that point. The second reason is potentially because having considered the circumstances under which he had left Ephesus some four, five, six months before, that opposition very well may not have died down. And so if he went, there was a very real risk that he was going to end up in jail and for that reason not be able to accomplish his goal. And so as we'll see in the second half of the chapter, the solution that he arrives at is instead of going there, he rather gathers the elders of the people because he recognizes that they are the ones that are going to be continuing to minister to the people in his absence. And so he focuses his attention and his encouragement on them so that they can in turn take it to the congregations that had been established in and around Ephesus. And so we see that Paul has this sense, this determination, this burden that he has to get back to Jerusalem. We'll talk about this again when we come to chapter 21 because there's this lingering question that some people have, which is, Paul, did you make a mistake? Did you have to go to, Jeru to Jerusalem and get arrested and then go to Rome as a prisoner? Couldn't God have worked it out in a different way? The short answer is yes, but the other answer is, but that's not how it happened. Did Paul sin by going to Jerusalem? You know, we can, we can go back and forth on that, but I think that God had given Paul a legitimate burden to see the conversion of his people, Paul willingly accepted the consequences of that, which was, if you go here, you're going to be arrested and you're going to suffer. And even for those people who argue that Paul made the wrong choice, 
I think they still have to admit and say, God accomplished his work through Paul regardless. Now, that doesn't mean we don't consider whether we're making the right decision. It, it, God will work it all out in the end, so do whatever you want. But it does mean, even if we take a wrong step along the way, even if God changes our plans, even if we come up with a new plan and that plan is in conflict with what would probably be most honoring to God, and we go through with it, God's sovereignty is greater than our choices. And so I believe that Paul made the right decision, but I believe that God accomplished what he wanted to accomplish through Paul, regardless of Paul's decision. And so again, Paul was going to go over to Macedonia, and then he was going to go to Jerusalem, apparently by way of Syria. God said, no, there's a plot by the Jews. So Paul instead goes back through Macedonia, along the coast of Turkey, to arrive at Jerusalem without going back to Syria. He ended up not having time to minister as much as he would like to the people of Ephesus. He ended up not having time to give a report to the church at Syria. And yet the work of the church was going forward. They indirectly got a report when Luke published his account. And God accomplished what he wanted to accomplish through Paul. So again, are you willing for God to change your plans? Are you willing for God to be glorified by however those circumstances turn out? And do we recognize that God is accomplishing good things in our lives in the way that we plan or in the way that he plans or in the intersection of all of those things? Let's pray. Lord, help us to trust you that you know what is right that you know what is good for us, that you know what is for the good of your church, that you know what is for the advancement of the gospel. Lord, certainly we have individual responsibility for the choices that we make. We can't just say, I'll do whatever I want, it doesn't matter, God will work it all out in the end. But we can recognize that when something that we are really convinced would honor you, like when Paul wanted to initially go through Asia several chapters before and the Spirit forbid him from doing so. You don't necessarily speak to us in that way today, but you certainly, through arranging circumstances, shut the way to some opportunities and open the way to others. Lord, help us to recognize in that that you have the right to do that. You are our God. You are our Heavenly Father. Help us to trust that you know what you're doing that you do right, that you will be honored, that good will be accomplished, that the gospel will go forth in all of these things. Help us to serve you faithfully, even when we don't know the next thing around the next bend, trusting that you are a sovereign God, a wise God, a good God, and that you can accomplish your purpose in all of these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.